We're going to continue our series on developing a godly identity. Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Developing a Godly Identity, subtitled Diplomatic Responsibility and Privilege. Diplomatic Responsibility and Privilege. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. Paul is writing, and he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, help us as we study. Three things I'd like to highlight from this passage. One, what representative authority looks like, which is really who we are called to represent and what we're called to do, how we do it. Number two, which is requesting with passion. And three, the result of our doing it well, that righteousness gets revealed. Paul here is working really hard to try to help the church at Corinth understand their responsibilities and their privileges. If they have been given the opportunity to be reconciled by God, and that through great cost, Jesus has given his life for their benefit. And as a result of this conciliatory effort, they need to now consider themselves not only recipients, but dispensers. That if you have received the ministry of reconciliation and God has made you right with him and that is the only way you can be right with him you cannot have a relationship with God on your own terms the only way we can be right is if he makes us right with him and we receive that which he has already decided to give and once you have received the benefit of being made right then you now have the responsibility of being the one who dispenses it and gives it out to others That the principle is uh, one that Jesus stated that if you have freely received, then you need to freely give. That it's somewhat selfish to hold on to your salvation experience without letting others know. That the reality is that God is allowing you to be here on the planet, which is his, and allowing you to breathe his air, which is his, and allowing you to consume his resources, which are his, so that he might get some return on his investment. If it was all about just creating a relationship with you and you with him, somebody should have done you a favor by leaving you in the baptismal just a little bit longer, letting you go to heaven in a hurry. But it's not just about that. Indeed, it is important that you relate to him and that you love him with all your heart and have a bond that continues to grow with integrity but he didn't, just, he didn't leave you here just for that. He left you here that you might be somewhat ambassadorial to a community that has no idea what his kingdom looks like, doesn't know what it sounds like, doesn't know what it feels like. They're looking for authenticity. 
The kind of authenticity that is not always trying to share everything that's wrong in their life so that they can be perceived as being real. But the authenticity that, that comes directly from God to say, this is who he's made me to be. He's made me to be a representative of, of his goodness and grace to a, to a humanity that has no idea what it looks like. And so words are not enough. They're looking for somebody who can embody it. And Paul is doing what he can to try to help the people understand you aren't just folk that have gotten saved. You are folk that, that need to help others get right. Now, the, the, he, he's using his own ministerial experience as a, as a vehicle through which he is now commending this responsibility to the church in, in Corinth. Meaning, he says, we who have received this reconciliation are now responsible to, to minister it, that that God has made us indeed ambassadors for Christ. And he uses the term we in ministering to the church at Corinth, describing not only himself, but all of the compatriots that are with him in ministry. But then almost feeling like he's inviting the church at Corinth to participate in this opportunity. That we is much larger than just the people that he's traveling with and ministering with, but it's we, the body of Christ, is supposed to be an example of who God is to the world. And that's where he says, therefore, we are ambassadors. He doesn't say we do ambassadorial duties. Though if we are ambassadors, we do ambassadorial duties. He says we are ambassadors. Now, the interesting thing about this title is it is the only time that Paul refers to himself this way. He refers to himself as a father to the church at Corinth. He is an apostle, though he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. He has pastoral gifts. He is a teacher. He's evangelistic in his orientation that, in that every place he goes, he just wins people to Jesus. And at times, he's prophetic. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. But when he speaks and, and, and says, I have no other command, no other exhortation except this which has been given to me, he's saying, thus says the Lord. There are a number of times that it's veiled because he doesn't want to appear as being someone who is only defined as a prophet, but this man is talking on behalf of God. And so he, he functions in all of the fivefold gifting at some level or another. But we see that the, the term of, of ambassador is not a term of title, nor is it an office in the church. He's really taking an idea from the world, probably the Roman world, and then using that, superimposing it over our responsibility as believers to represent God's kingdom. And so it's much more of a function than it is a position. And when I began to see that, I said, well, since there is no definition in Scripture of an ambassador, maybe I can look at what Paul began to view as an ambassador, uh, ambassador's responsibility, i.e., Roman world, secular world, and then bringing that definition and superimposing it over our responsibilities, maybe I could begin to find some things out with respect to what an ambassador's responsibilities might be if I looked at what America defined one to be. And so I went online and I found some things that are, that are requirements, if you will, or non-requirements of a person who is going to be an ambassador or in the foreign service. Number one, you don't have to have a degree. And that's all. Now, better if you do but you don't have to have a degree. If you have one, you represent your, your country better because people think you're smarter. <laughs> and you've worked hard in education, so you get a little bit more respect. So having a degree is good, but it's not a requirement. 
And if you do have a degree, you don't have to have a political science degree. It could be anything. Good if you have some communication skills, understand something about conciliation, be able to negotiate well. You need to have some substantive understanding of who America is, our history. Um, you need to know a little bit about our culture. Uh, by the way, if you were to superimpose that over Christianity, not a bad idea to read your Bible every day. <laughs> Understand about your history, your spiritual culture, what God says is most right about his will. Read your Bible every day. And you don't, getting back to the degree thing, you don't have to have a seminary degree to be a good ambassador. You do have to be between the ages of 20 and 59, though if somebody is extremely skilled and they happen to be above 59, they will allow them the privilege of service, but they generally don't go below on the other end. They're not looking for an 18-year-old to represent them overseas. Not, not that you could not be a good representation of who America is, it's just that the responsibilities generally take a little bit more than your years have allowed you to, to glean. And it would be good if you learned something about the culture to which you were going. If you spoke the language of the people to which you were being sent, that would be even better. These are very strong suggestions, not necessarily deep requirements, and that even the age thing is expanded on the top end a little bit if, if necessary. But there is one non-negotiable. If you are not an American citizen, you cannot be an ambassador. You must be an American citizen. And... You cannot hold dual citizenship. Do I need to preach that point a little bit? You got to give up your other passport. You want to be an ambassador for the kingdom. You cannot be an ambassador for the world at the same time. Even the world knows that. As soon as you start doing what they do, saying what they say, going where they go, does not the world then call you a what? Hypocrite. They don't know how to describe it in kingdom terms, but they do know you ought not be like me. You call yourself a Christian, you ought to be different. Why are you holding another passport? Why do you think you got something that gives you access to do everything I do on this end? Something about your citizenship is messed up. The requirements upon an ambassador are somewhat, somewhat loose and that, not deep, but that is one that is a non-negotiable. You must be a citizen of the United States of America and you cannot have dual citizenship. Representative authority is that which does not come from you. Somebody else's. And this is what an ambassador holds dear. He is not representing himself over there. He's representing somebody else. And he understands that I can only speak the words that I'm authorized to speak. I can only do the deeds upon which I'm authorized to do. It's not my will, it's their will. I'm under authority. And I'm representing the people from which I have come. And my job is to represent them well to you. Not just to give the edicts 
and the requirements of the government which I represent, but the heart. And to hear what's going on in your world so that I can relate well without compromising what I'm called to do. This is everything that a good ambassador does. You have to have some leadership skills. You have to have some, some wisdom and understanding. And when we talk about what representative authority means, it means that really you're set aside. Who you are and what you desire is not near as important as what God is, who God is and what he desires. That you are representing him in every way in all that you do. Peter kind of speaks about this in a different way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12, he says, Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. He calls them aliens. If there are aliens, we are them. When we got born again, we got new citizenship. We were translated from a kingdom where we used to identify. And we were translated from that into the kingdom of light, from the darkness into the light. And we no longer identify with the former kingdom. Our responsibility now is to identify with our new birth and our new family. God has in, it given us an inheritance. He has called us his very, very own. He's designated us by name as his. And our responsibility is to make sure that we identify with that first and not identify with the other. Yet we have relevance to the other, yet we do not compromise who we are in order to relate to the other. It is absolutely critical that we identify ourselves as aliens in this world. That we are sojourners. This is not home to us. And I'm not talking about terra firma. I'm talking about the culture of the world. And if you feel more comfortable in that culture than in the Christian kingdom culture... And maybe I ought to phrase that differently because there are so many ways to define what Christianity looks like. I probably need to describe it as a biblical culture rather than a Christian culture. Because there's a whole lot of stuff labeled Christianity that ain't biblical. But if you identify more with the world's culture than you do biblical culture, something's wrong with your citizenship. What do we call an ambassador in America? who is sent from us to another country, and they now identify more with that country than us. What do we call them? I'm trying to make you happy, but it's not working. <laughs> traitor. That's what we call them, a traitor. They've left their allegiance, and they decided to identify with somebody else. God paid a lot. Paid a lot to get you right, to get you to think right. He wants a return on his investment. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not lowering him to be a businessman that's looking for profit. I'm doing my best to try to help you understand why he left you here. That he is looking for his kingdom to advance through your life, and that is not on the basis of your specific calling or your title. 
It has everything to do with your function. Meaning I am an ambassador wherever I go regardless of whether I'm pastor. I'm representing the kingdom in giant. I'm representing the kingdom when I go work out and run and see somebody on the trail and, and they say, hey, Pastor Brett, how you doing? And they want to sit down and talk and look at it as an opportunity to get an appointment. Pastor, can I run with you for a minute? No, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. You know I can't talk right now, right? right. It's not going not to not work. And so I try to run faster that they can't keep up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, con- I'm confessing. I'm confessing my own sin, though I'm not repenting. I'm confessing. I'm confessing. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised when people look at it as a God opportunity. Oh, I got Pastor Brett. Ooh, I can talk to him for a minute. <laughs> we are kingdom representatives wherever we go. Wherever we go. And it's important that we acknowledge that and accept it. Accept it. That we have to represent who he is at the highest level. At the highest level. In our workplace, wherever we go, we represent him well. And the way we do it is with a request that is impassioned. Meaning we are doing our best to try to help people understand who God is. And this world doesn't know. They don't have a clue. They know what religion kind of looks like, but they don't know who God is. And they don't know why in the world he loves them so much. And they don't know his plan for their life. And as much as I would like to just give them a card, a tract, something that is philosophical in my words, it's, 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 it's a little hollow if I don't live it. Still true, but if I don't live it, there's no confirmation that it works. They still have to repent regardless. But now they have to jump over me to do so. They got to hurdle my inconsistency and my hypocrisy to find God. And I'm trying to to reduce the barriers for people to get to God. By being an excellent ambassador. Somebody who knows not only what his responsibility is as being a representative authority of the kingdom. But knows how to present it. And if anybody had the authority to be able to command folks to do something, it would have been Paul. There was no church in Corinth had not Paul gone to Corinth to birth it. All these people not only owe their life to Christ and to the Father God for sending Jesus and saving him, but they owe their life to Paul for for going and, and establishing this people. He could have told them as the father of this congregation, do what I say. But yet he humbles himself. And he says... We are ambassadors for Christ as if God is appealing through us. Appealing. When you have the right to be authoritative, sometimes it's not right to be so. Are you listening to me? He had the right to tell him what to do. Yet he said, "I'm, I'm appealing. And the word appeal means to plea. To have a heart cry. And then he explains what this looks like in the very next stanza. As though God were appealing through us, we beg you. A begging on Paul's behalf. We beg you be reconciled to God. The way we present truth has a profound impact on how people receive it. 
Whether they receive it or not is up to them. Meaning, there's no way we can make it perfect. Because God's moving is through imperfect people and plans and systems. So there's no way we can make it as good as Jesus would have made it. But remember, even when he produced it right, they killed him. They killed him. So, so we need to do our best, but even when you do it perfect, it may not work like you think. But we definitely need to do it the best way we know how so that we don't produce more stumbling blocks before they can find who Jesus is. I.e., we can't go to folks and begin to talk to them about their sin without talking to them about the goodness of God. Oh, I meet with so many people who are shacking up. Not saying I meet with them as couples. I meet with people who are shacking up. And it's, it's so common today. You know what shacking up means? It means you're living with a person of the opposite sex in a way that looks like marriage, but is not. And I meet with so many people. And, and, and they don't think it's wrong in that they are telling me, we'd like to have you over for dinner, Pastor. And I'm saying, absolutely. I accept I'm going to help y'all. Now, getting to the issue of whether they should be living under the same roof is last to me. It's not first. It's last. I'm trying to tell them about who Jesus is. And the beauty of me telling them about who Jesus is and the standard of Scripture, not just mine, but the standard of Scripture, is that sooner or later, they figure out, you know what? Um... Should we be like doing this? <laughs> Usually the woman gets it before the man. Should we, you know, you think maybe we, we but she doesn't know what to say because she thinks the only other opportunity is for her to move out and say bye or get married and she doesn't know how to, how to really, um, should we like, you know, maybe we should, could we, could we go to Bible study a lot? <laughs> well, I like that church. I like that church. There are three things the Holy Spirit has been sent to do, and I'm trying to agree with him on how he wants to move rather than manipulating it so he'll move like I want to move. Three things Jesus said. He came to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, because they don't believe in Jesus. Righteousness, because Jesus goes to the Father in judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I'm trying to stay on those three things. Sin... Because they don't believe in Jesus. I'm not trying to get them to be all right before they get right. I'm just saying believe in Jesus. Let's, get, let's break it down. Do you believe that Jesus is exactly who he says he was and did what he said he did? If you, don't, if you do, then we can, we can work this salvation thing out. That'd be great. Righteousness because he goes to the Father. Meaning he is the only one that has gone from the planet to heaven. He was the first one. Nobody had done this before. Now, everybody can do it after if they believe in him because he led the way. But he lived such a right life that it was that which God approved that allowed him access to go straight to glory. Therefore, if we look at what right looks like, look to him. Because he went to the Father. And then judgment, because if you, if, if you don't want to live like him, there, there's an example of what, what happens to people who don't. The ruler of this world gets judged. God is a righteous judge. Those three things... The Holy Spirit is concentrating on So when I concentrate on those three things in that order, salvation first, right deeds next, wrong deeds stop, when I concentrate in that order, I'm agreeing with what the Holy Spirit already said he was called to do. Therefore, I got to do a little bit. He does a lot. Yes. 
Are you listening to me? There's a way in which we can present with pleading, with, with, with a passion, always looking to ourselves, knowing that the only way we got right was by the mercy of Almighty God. He was so kind and patient and gentle with us. We can be in this thing so long and start to live so right that somehow we begin to let bleed in there. Our good deeds look so good to God that he couldn't afford to do without us. So he chose us because we were so wonderful. You were a criminal that had a rap sheet longer than all the gigabytes on the planet could contain. I'm telling you. And God overlooked and forgave all that. Because he loved you. It had nothing to do with how good you were. It has everything to do with how good he is. As we look to ourselves, then we become compassionate in our presentation. And rather than calling everybody just wrong for what they're doing, we're merciful, yet we're truthful. We're truthful. And we allow for our citizenship to bleed through intentionally. And then they realize, you're not from this world. As I said... If there are aliens, we are them. Ought to be so different that everybody says, you're not, you're, not, you're not from here. You live different. We plead. We, we beg. We are merciful. And we are kind. And we are patient with people. Yet we are truthful. And our lives have to be consistent. As we talked about what hypocrisy looked looked like before, Peter not only said, you are strangers and aliens, but he said in verse 12, keep your behavior among the Gentiles as excellent. He didn't say, just be a hair better. In fact, he defines it better in in 2 Peter. Uh, verse 5 chapter 1 where he says let your moral excellence be let your faith be followed up by moral excellence not moral mediocrity let your faith be followed up add to it moral excellence and so we need to be excellent in our behavior with the Gentile community with, with the world out there with the world that doesn't know let your behavior be excellent so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may, on account of your good behavior, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, day of visitation is normally looked at as when Jesus shows up for the second time in bodily form. And he winds things up. And I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. But I'm not just looking for God to visit me when he comes back. I'm looking for him to visit me on Monday. I need a, I need a day of visitation when I'm over there trying to chapel the Redskins trying to help these brothers get right. I need God to visit us because I don't have all the power necessary in order to see people. By the way, two ball players got born again this past week. I don't know. I don't know that that would have happened had not God visited us in our meeting. I could feel his presence as I was ministering to these guys. And the Lord is doing something really special in that environment. And I am free to do whatever I want and say whatever I want. I know, the, I know the organization you may be hearing, but they allow your pastor to be what he is called to be among them every day. And they beg me to do everything I can to help them. 
whatever. And they don't put any rules on it. They say, just do what you do. We don't preach the gospel. Preach the gospel, do what you do. They love the ambassadorial responsibilities. And I'm not pastor there. This isn't a title. I'm just a guy. To the rest of these I'm just a guy coming in trying to represent the kingdom. And I know you always think in your mind, well, you know, you are a pastor now. You have some skills. And we don't have those skills. I get it. This is what I do for a living. But before I did this for a living, I did this. I got saved at Indiana University in March of 1981. By the end of April, I was on campus giving my testimony as students walked by. Meaning, standing in a grassy area while students were going from one place to another, talking to them like I'm talking to you about Jesus. And then somebody would stop and question me, disagree with me, and then I'd have dialogue back and forth with them, which would then allow other people to sit and listen to us, quote-unquote, argue, though it was beautiful dialogue. And then other people would stand around and listen to all of us dialogue. 25 folks would be there. At the end of the moment, somebody gets saved. Now, I was a 3.5 student before I got saved. I was 2.7 after. Not because I got dumber. I just didn't care. That, and, and, and students, do not take that as justification. <laughs> Do not take, do not take that. I was wrong doing right. God wants us to be right doing right. But I, when students were standing around listening, I just skip class and continue to preach to them. And then afterwards, take them to the church and get them baptized. Nobody was asking me to do this. I just felt like I had to be an ambassador of his goodwill. Now you say, okay, well, you were called ultimately to do it. I get that. But nobody knew I was called until I did it. Who are you? Who are you? Be an ambassador and somebody might confuse you with being a minister. There should be an appeal that comes out of us. And, and, and lastly, what happens when all this occurs is that the righteousness of God gets revealed. It would have been right Hear me, it would have been right if God judged the entire planet for its disobedience. It would have been right because we were all guilty. He would have had no wrong in him at all. But he decided not to do that because he had a different version of right. And his version of right was rather than making you pay, he'd pay. With God, it's never an issue of wrong. It's just what version of right is he going to employ? And this version of right sounded like this. I love my humanity so much that I don't want them to pay for their own sin. But there's no way they could ever get back to me on their own. They can't get right on their own. They're bent wrong. They come out that way. They, they have a tendency to always rebel and it's an amazing thing when any of them ever do right. Our society says mankind is good in getting better. Where? And it's, it's the exception to the rule that proves the rule. Why do we have shows like CNN Heroes? You know the award show where they hand out 
things to people who have done extraordinary things in the community. Why is that there? Because it doesn't happen very often. If everybody was doing what they should do, then everybody would receive an award. <laughs> and there'd be no distinction because mankind was great. But the fact that man is so messed up highlights the fact when somebody does something good. And because we have moments like that when we honor people for their extraordinary sacrifice, it amplifies the idea that it doesn't happen all the time because man is really messed up. And God knew there was no way for man to help himself. So he said, I'm going to do it on my own. They deserve judgment. I said I wasn't going to bring water again, but he could bring fire whenever he wants. He's got very creative ways to deal with folk. And he chooses every day not to. He is so kind and so gracious and so patient. And not only does he delay his judgment, he said, they can't fix themselves. I'm going to do it. Though I don't deserve it, I'm going to take their sin on my life. I'm going to take their whooping as if it's mine. That's where we get the phrase that seems disconnected from the prior. He who knew no sin became sin on their behalf. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. It wasn't about just being another moral guy on a good cause. This was a man who lived with the same temptations every other man has, yet did not sin. He lived perfectly. Not a wicked thought, not a wicked word, not a wicked act. Every day of his life, he was doing it in obedience to God and with thought of you. He knew that if he blew it once, all of humanity would be doomed forever. And that weight was on his shoulders every day. And he woke up saying, I got to obey. I got to obey today for them. I got to obey today. For them. He had a human will that wanted at times probably to not do, but he did. As evidenced in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he realized something was going to happen the next day that would tear him apart. God, if there's any way this thing could pass, please let it. Please, I don't want to go through this, but not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. His humanity was bleeding through. It wasn't just about dying, but it was what, what dying meant. Isaiah says that he was marred more than any man, and we did not recognize him. Oh, thousands upon thousands of people have been crucified in the Roman Empire. But none had suffered like Christ. It was not just the nails in his hands. It wasn't just the nail in his feet. It was the fact that he took the burden of sin upon himself so that he was not even recognizable as a man any longer. Sin is so ugly. It is so painful. It is so burdensome that we did not even recognize him, the Bible says. And it so affected Jesus and his humanity that he cried out because the father had to turn his back on his own boy. He became sin. All that was wrong with you, he became. All the punishment that you deserved, he took. So much so that he said to the Father, God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had to because, because sin can't be in his presence. 
Now, when I was young, I had to do some fighting um, because I, I, I lived in a white neighborhood as a black kid and broke the color barrier. So my mother gave me judo. And so I, I learned a little bit about judo. I, I became an orange belt. That's how much I knew about judo. Very little. But I knew this. The judo was not about attack. Judo was about leverage. So the goal was to try to make the other guy come first, and then you take his strength and use it against him. Jesus, Jesus committed the greatest judo move in history. The enemy thought he was killing him. The man who had done the most good, he thought, I have finally eradicated this dude. He was messing up everything I planned for generations. Finally, he's dead. And all of a sudden, on the third day, toes began to move. Things began to happen in the, in the grave. And, and the enemy, what, 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 what's going on here? Well, it's about done for you now. It's about done. Yeah, yeah. You see that thing you did by killing me? What you did is you killed the power of sin because I never deserved to die. Therefore, I can't stay dead. But sin became a part of me. Therefore, sin stayed in the grave. I did not. And the power of sin has been done away with as a result of the cross. He who knew no sin became it on your behalf. Why? So that you could be declared right. Not by anything you've done. But because God chose the most unusual version of right to respond to you. Nobody would have done this. Not when they were all right. Being able to judge humanity is all wrong. But he took your whooping on himself and declared you innocent. And not just innocent. But now someone who is found in his son. That's why it says the righteousness of God in him. When you are found in Christ, the only thing God sees when he sees you is Jesus. That's the only. He doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't see your flaws. He sees his boy. And as a result of you responding the way you should as an ambassador, you proclaim his highest, the highest version of right in the universe. The sacrifice that it took to get you like this, you are his trophy of grace to everybody. It doesn't require perfection, although that would be nice. That you would be all right every day would be great. But none of us are. We should strive for it, but none of us have proven it. But that you are more right than you were yesterday is a testament to God's grace and it makes everybody glorify him when they see you, especially the people who knew you before. B.C. Knew you before Christ and now they see you, they say, mm, that's only God right there because I knew that brother. I knew him. I'm telling you right now, he was on the street. You, t- you listen to me, he was on the street and now he's faithful to his wife and got three kids. Mm-mm, that's only Jesus. That is only Jesus. You become a testament of God's righteousness, the way he responded to humanity. Be a great ambassador. Live right. Speak right. Let your life and your home and your community, wherever you go, be a little outpost of glory so that those who need refuge from the world can come straight to you. Let's pray.